That song uh, is likely familiar to all of us, eh? Amazing Grace was originally written by John Newton uh, to actually uh, illustrate a sermon uh, that he was preaching on New Year's Day of 1773. And this has become perhaps one of the most famous hymns that has ever been written, uh, one that's sung and celebrated in both Christian and secular contexts alike, And it's a song where the words have deep meaning and resonance to Newton himself. Newton did not grow up a Christian, uh, but his life had uh, so many ups and downs that it eventually brought him to a profound understanding of the work of grace in his own life. At at a young age, uh, Newton was conscripted into the Royal Navy in those days in the Great Britain and the colonies, and he spent the majority of his young life to about middle age serving in the Royal Navy. But he eventually was let out of the Navy, and for the decades beyond that, Newton uh, was one of the leaders of the Atlantic slave trade. He was actually perhaps one of the most prosperous and successful slave trade merchants in the Atlantic Ocean in those days, using all the knowledge and skill that he had gained from being in the Royal Navy to now partaking in the absolute injustice of the trade of human flesh. 
1748, his slave vessel was just off the coast of Ireland and a massive storm ripped up. One of those storms where everybody on board the ship thought that they were going to die. And as the story happens and goes, Newton was standing on the deck of the ship and he looked out at the storm thinking he was about to die and cries out for God to have mercy on him. The storm apparently subsides and the vessel was able to make it into the port. And that was the spiritual conversion moment for Newton. From that point onwards, he gave his life to Christ Jesus, a life that would eventually lead him to actually uh, being a vicar in the Church of England, hence the sermon on New Year's Day in 1773. But there's something that's a little less known about Newton that after that, a moment in 1748 where he had his conversion to Jesus, for the next 10 years, Newton was still a slave trader. Think about that for a second. On the one side, professing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and on the other side, still involved in the profit of the trade of human flesh. And we know that towards the end of his life, he was beginning to wrestle with the ills and the sins of his past. And so he writes this hymn. And he says these profound words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wretched indeed. One who had been involved in one of the most wretched practices of all of human history one who understood that if God's grace could be extended to him, that was truly amazing grace. One who realized that out of the depth of the brokenness and the injustice of his past, he was now able to sing a song of truly amazing grace. I mean, grace really is amazing, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Because it wouldn't be until May 1st, 1807, that the slave trade was legally abolished in Great Britain and the colonies. And I want you to imagine what it would have been like to have been a freed slave in that time. By 1807, Amazing Grace was a song, a hymn that was being sung in the churches of the colonies uh, all around. Imagine for a moment if you were one of the freed slaves in 1807, standing in a congregation in the colonies that was largely white, and this hymn starts to be sung. I wonder if you could imagine how hard it must have been for that freed slave to sing that song, to be willing to stand amongst all the white people around them and sing a song written by a slave trader, an ex slave trader perhaps, but a slave trader none the south. One who had for many years profited off of the misery and the slavery of their own people. I think there may have been a little bitterness on the tongue of the one singing about a grace for that one. And the question arises for us, I think, quite profoundly. Is it possible to sing the song of the oppressor, even if the oppressor shows remorse. Is grace actually that amazing? 
That's the question I want you to hold in your mind and in your spirit as we step into looking at the third song of Advent that we're doing today. We've looked at Mary's song, this song of a hope for those that are oppressed, a a song that cries out and says that God is able to bring down the rulers and raise up the humble, uh, send the rich away empty, but feed the starving. And then last week we saw of a, a song of Zechariah, a song for the rest, for the weary, those that are tired, those that are worn out, those that are hoping that a Messiah would come to set them free and give them that peace and security for all eternity, that there's a, a song for the rest, for the weary. Well, this week and next week, we turn to looking at two songs in our Christmas story in Scripture that happen after the birth of Jesus. Mary and Zechariah leading up to the birth, and now Simeon this week, and next week the angels singing a song after the birth of Jesus, a song that celebrates the reality of what's happening and importantly speaks of the themes of what this Jesus is actually going to do. And in the song that we're going to look at today, Simeon, a prophet in the temple, brings a song that declares the work that Jesus will do in his kingdom through his life, death, and his resurrection. But it's a song that many in Israel were not yet ready to sing. Let me read this to you. It's from uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, and we're going to go 21 through to 32. On the eighth day, this is the eighth day after Jesus' birth, When it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Now, when the time for their purification according to the Lord of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer there a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So now moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law and required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke is a master storyteller, and this is his last story about the birth of Jesus. It's the last Advent Christmas story that we have in Scripture. And and, and to paint this story as vividly as he can for the reader, he pulls together some of the most important aspects of, of what Jewish religious life was like in those days. He speaks of a temple, circumcision, dedication, offerings, and a song the very things that summarize perhaps how the Jews were to faithfully worship in those days. And he paints a picture of Mary and Joseph once again being this faithful Jewish couple. 
Everything he mentions here, Mary, Jesus, Mary and Joseph do out of their faithful obedience to the law of Moses. On the eighth day, they take Jesus and they give him his name as the angel Gabriel had said. They, they circumcise him as was right to do for that firstborn male. They then bring him 40 days later. So this is about day 48 of Jesus' life. They bring him to the temple. Now, just for a second, imagine what that would have been like. This is the very first time that Jesus, the Messiah, is brought into the temple. The temple representing the house of God. The temple being the very place where the Spirit of God dwelled. I mean, for God, this must have been one of the most significant, most exciting moments of all creation. Finally, Jesus in God's house. Mary and Joseph have really no full concept of what they're doing. All they're doing is remaining faithful to what was required of them. On that 40th, eighth day, they come themselves and they were to do three things. First of all, purify themselves in a ritual of sacrifice. In order to do that, they were supposed to bring either a lamb or a dove, if you have a lot of money, or if you were poorer, like Mary and Joseph, you were to bring two pigeons. These would be sacrificed to offer purification for you as the parents. After that, you were then to present your child to the temple. Present your child essentially to Yahweh, to God. And then to dedicate the child. Now, this is really important. Dedicate the child for service for the rest of their life to the Lord. I think this is brilliant. Because Mary and Joseph are just doing what's told for them to do. They're being obedient to the law. But they're about to dedicate the Messiah to the service of his father to do all the things that God has on his heart to do in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the redemption of all history, all of that is in front of them and they have no idea. And so as they bring this child in, Simeon, a prophet, old, old prophet in the temple, is so filled with the Holy Spirit that something unbelievable takes place. And I want you to see what's happening here. Mary and Joseph, very ordinary, very normal, are suddenly about to come into contact with God stepping into their mundane and normal. We need to understand that out of the ordinary, God brings his extraordinary. This is the way of God. This is what the Christmas Advent story in Scripture has been pointed towards. The fact that the Messiah, born in the ordinariest of a stable, something extraordinary into the world. All the angels in front of the shepherds, ordinary shepherds going about their normal day. The extraordinary of God breaking into that mundane and yet again right in this moment. And, and what Luke's trying to tell the reader is something really simple. That, that it's in our normal everyday lives that God often comes and changes them for his extraordinary. And, and I think that's a real encouragement for each person in this room. I mean, I don't know what's exactly going on in your life right now. I don't know what the ups and downs might be, but I do know the year we've all lived before. And I know that it can often feel like it's overwhelming for us in terms of the mundaneness of life, the, the just that, you know, I've been coming to church every Sunday and I do that and I've got all these things and just like Susanna was praying, all this prayer and stuff that I've been holding in my heart and I, I don't know what's going to happen. But what Luke is trying to say is this, the call of the people of God is not to the extraordinary, it's to the ordinary. We are the ones who are called just to be faithful, as Mary and Joseph were, to the law, to the things 
to the obedience of God, knowing that it's our ordinary that gets invaded by God's extraordinary. You don't need to be the greatest miracle worker. That's actually God's job. You don't need to have all the answers of everything. That's actually God's prerogative. What you're called to is simply faithfulness. The beautiful, wonderful faithfulness of obedience to God in the best way that you can, even in the brokenness that we all have, trying to be just faithful and the reality of that, God steps in. Mary and Joseph step into the temple in the ordinariness of obeying the law of Moses. God breaks in with the extraordinary and does something that changes all of history. You're about to step into the ordinary of your 2022. And I wonder where your expectation sits. Does it sit with this, oh, I don't really know what that year is going to be about. Or is there something beginning to rise in your spirit that says, as I step into what might appear like the ordinary of 2022, I might have a heart that would expect the extraordinary of what God might want to do. Are you with me? So Luke's trying to open up this idea of what faithfulness looks like. And then he shifts the spotlight from the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph to the faithfulness of Simeon, this old prophet. Let me read to you just a couple of verses of how Luke describes Simeon in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. For it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord Jesus. Now, this is awesome. Here's a man who has been given by the Spirit of God a word over his life, a calling over his life. And Luke describes him as righteous and devout. I mean, if if Mary and Joseph were like this beautiful picture of faithful Jewish people, here's the picture of a faithful religious man, a faithful prophet who's righteous and devout. And God has said that he is waiting, longing for the consolation of Israel. What he wants, in other words, is for Israel to rise up, for Israel to, to receive the glory and the goodness that God has for it, that Israel would be established once again to live freely in their land, the consolation of all that Israel had meant for. This man is holding that passion in his heart. And not only that, But at some point, God has come to him and said this. Hey, Simeon, this is really awesome. Check this out. You're not going to die until you've seen the Messiah. Can you imagine how exciting that would have been to Simeon? I'm going to see the Messiah. Now, he probably got that word when he was in his 40s. And you can imagine it, right? Every single day. Today could be the day where I will see the Messiah. And then he'd get to the end of the day and he'd be like, okay, it wasn't today. And then he got up the next day. Today might be the day that I get to see the Messiah. And then he goes to bed that night going, it wasn't this day. And now here he is. And the Bible's describing him as very, very old. And it's like he's sort of saying, gee, God, I want to die. <laughs> like I'm really old now, right? Could today please be the day that I see the Messiah? Because that would be really good for me and my family. And for all of Israel, yes, but for me too, particularly. I want to go home, you know. So here he is on this day, on the ordinary mundaneness of this day. And the Bible says something really important. It says this in verse 27. It says, moved by the Spirit. 
he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child Jesus in to do what was just ordinary, mundane, the custom, the law required, Simeon takes him in his arms. Now, this is nuts. Could you imagine this moment? The temple court is a busy public space. It's not the inner courts that were more private. The outer court, the temple courts, were busy, and that was where you could buy your sacrifices and everything. It was loud and noisy and all of this. And here's Mary and Joseph, and they've just walked up the steps of the temple. They've entered under the archways into the outer courts. They're holding Jesus, and you can imagine they are overwhelmed by the cacophony of noise and everything. This is an overwhelming moment. And not only that, but here's the... The old man Simeon, whose wondering is today the day, who's filled suddenly with the Holy Spirit, and he sees this young couple, and he walks intently towards them, as if, I'm just going to pretend you're Mary and Joseph, okay? <laughs> Don't freak out, it's true. But he walks intently towards them, and he, without saying anything, grabs the child from their arms, and he holds it aloft. It's like, it's like the Lion King moment, right? It's like, oh, Now, could you imagine what that would have felt like for Mary and Joseph? A couple of years ago, quite a few years ago now, when Mia was just two years old, Chris and I were in Pacific Place one day, and we're just pushing Mia in a, in a, in a, a stroller through Pacific Place. And out of nowhere, this, this lady, this older lady, Chinese lady, she bursts forward, and she gets on the knees. She stops the stroller. She gets on her knees, and she starts to touch Mia's face and, and play with her hair. And she starts to speak Cantonese over her. And this is a stranger to us. And we're like, what are you doing? This is our child. Back off. Here's Simeon. And he takes Jesus in his arms. And I don't know if he held Jesus to laugh. That's probably me just pretending, right? But he takes Jesus in his arms, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he sings a song. This is Simeon's moment. He's waited years. I want you to think about this. This is another picture of faithfulness. And you need to know that faithfulness does not guarantee you an easy life. You need to know that faithfulness doesn't always mean you're going to suddenly walk into the blessings of God. Faithfulness, like what Susanna shared, sometimes requires some patience. It requires doing the same thing in and out, in and out, in and out, trusting that God will one day break through with his extraordinary, this is Simeon's moment. And I tell you what, if ever somebody had a prepared speech, surely it was this man. Years of preparation for this one moment. I mean, he must have thought, what is it that I will say? What is it that I will sing? What will I prophesy over this child? But filled with the Holy Spirit, he takes the child, and I want you to see the prepared speech that Simeon had on his heart. Are you ready for this? Starting in verse 29. This is what he sings. He sings, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now can dismiss your servant in peace. I can die. That's the first thing he says, right? Like, this is taking a while, God. I'm old. Then he says this. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the people. And notice what he says. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. A light 
for the revelation for the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. He holds Jesus in his hands and he says, this is what you need to know, Israel. This one is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to us, Israel. Hang on a sec. Sit with this for a second. Let me read this to you again. He says this. The first thing he says about Jesus. He is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. Whoa, whoa, hang hang on one sec. I'm going to read it one more time. I just want to make sure that's right. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles. The first thing that comes out of this faithful Old Testament type prophet, one who's righteous and devout, is he says this Jesus is going to be the salvation, the hope, the redemption, the life to the hated, to the oppressing, to the painful, to the unrighteous, the the unclean Gentile. It's almost like if there was ever in history a moment where there is like the ripping of a record off of the needle. And it's like this, it's like, what? Hang on a second. Like that's the last thing the Jewish people were expecting to hear. Like this Messiah, surely he cannot be for the one who's oppressing us. Surely this Messiah cannot be for that unrighteous, unclean, disgusting, those people that lord themselves over us, those ones who have subjected us to that point for 600 years, these Romans that have us under control. No, that's not what we want. We are wanting a Messiah that does the second part of what Simeon says. He's a glory to us in Israel. Yes, We want a Messiah like that. I can get behind a Messiah who's the glory to Israel. But if you're asking me to sing a song about a Messiah who's the glory to our enemies, I've got a problem with that. Are you with me? It's interesting, isn't it? That grace is so often only amazing when it's grace for us. Think about that for a second. That so often grace is only really amazing when it's grace for people like us. Because surely God's grace is for people like us, right? You know, the good people, the, the, the righteous ones, you know, the, the ones that deserve it, the ones that have been under oppression for all these years, you know, you know the ones that, that have been called the chosen people of God, the ones that fill the pews of the churches around the world. I mean, we understand that grace is being given to us, the favor of God placed upon us. Oh, I can sing a song like that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, the one like me, you know, the one that deserves it, the one that's kind of, you know, come and align themselves with God, who's given his life to Jesus, who, who, who comes to church as much as I can, who, who, who sings and, and prays and believes and is faithful like Mary and Joseph and Simeon. I can sing a song about grace for people like me. Are you with me? That's not the song that Simeon is singing. That's not the song that he invites Israel to sing. Let me sing you the song that Simeon is singing. It sounds more like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved some wretches like them. That's what Simeon's singing. That this Jesus 
comes at Christmas, the advent of Christ comes to save all people. Simeon is putting right before Israel the hardest of realities, that Christ is on behalf of the other, the one on the other side of the aisle, the one that we struggle to like, the one that we have a problem with, the one that has, has come and done something perhaps to us, the one that we deeply struggle and wrestle with. It's that one, Simeon is saying, that this Christ Messiah has also come for. It's not just an amazing grace for you. It's an amazing grace for anyone who would open their lives to the work of the Holy Spirit. A slave trader can sing that song. The question is, can we? Like, can we actually sing a song of grace for the one on the other side, the one who is different to us, the one who doesn't have our theology, doesn't have our lifestyle, doesn't have our practices, doesn't believe in our God, doesn't do things that we think are appropriate, the one who's out there or wherever it might be. Can we also believe as a church that this Jesus came not just for the nice people, whatever that is defined as, but that this Jesus came for all people, the slave trader and the free slave alike. Now, here's the powerful thing. Simeon's song is not a new song. This is just picking up the threads of God's redemptive heart in all of redemptive history. In fact, Simeon is going right back into the Old Testament and drawing some of those themes out. He's going right back to Genesis chapter 12, where it all started, where Abraham was called to leave his family and move out and begin a new family, where the, where the nation of Israel itself was birthed. At that moment, God appears to Abraham, shows him all the stars in the sky, and says, your descendants from you will be like those of the stars in the sky. And then he says this, and through you, you will be a blessing to all nations. I mean, right at the foundation of it all, blessing to all nations. And, and then the Old Testament prophetic tradition keeps the going the idea that God always wants to redeem not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. In fact, the, the chapter of most central understanding of the Messiah coming as a child, Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born. And Isaiah's prophecy about a child coming who would be the one who would grow up to redeem Israel, right at the start of that prophetic chapter, here's what Isaiah says. He says, God will bring favor on the Gentiles of Galilee. Those who are in darkness will walk in light. It's right there in the Old Testament prophetic tradition, but somehow the Jews had begun to forget that so that when Simeon grabs this child and begins to sing a song like this, it was a song that was deeply challenging to them. Like how a freed slave in 1807 might have struggled to sing a song written by an ex-slave trader. So Israel struggles to sing a song about a hope and redemption for their oppressors. I, I think Mary herself would have struggled to sing this song, if we're honest. 
What was her song about? Her song was about the turning of the tables. Her song was about the, the, the rulers being brought down and the humble being lifted up. Her song was about hope for those that are under oppression. And I love this about the Christmas story, and we need to see this as the global church, particularly in this hour of our own history, that in the Bible Christmas story, yes, we have that beautiful picture of the turning upside down of the kingdom of God and the way that works in this world. We have hope for the oppressed, hope for those downtrodden, hope for those, because God's gonna come and turn the tables, absolutely. But we've also got in the same story a song to be sung about God's grace being for everyone, even for the enemy and the oppressor. Those two things are not at wars with one another. They sit side by side in the beauty of what Christmas is all about. Out of the ordinary, God brings an extraordinary. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would realize that we also can struggle to sing a song of that kind of amazing grace. Each one of us has an other in our lives. I want you to take a moment just to think a little bit about who that other might be for you. Perhaps for some of us in this room, the other is a colleague, a colleague who has hurt us, who has done something, who has led in a certain way that we feel kind of overrun by, a colleague that we're struggling to like and get on with. Or perhaps for some of you in this room, the other is an an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend, somebody who's perhaps hurt you, Someone who's betrayed you, broken your heart, said something, done something, and you're still trying to deal with the aftermath of that reality. Perhaps for some of you in this room, the other is your parent. And your parent has never said to you once that they truly loved you. You've never heard those words. You've never felt adequate enough for them. You never felt you were good enough for them. And you've carried and harbored a sense of bitterness and resentment, even though perhaps you are are open to them and you're in relationship with them, but deep inside you struggle to truly find yourself loving them. Or perhaps in this room, the other is a friend, a friend who has done something or hurt something or, or been in some way that has really turned you upside down, maybe betrayed you or whatever it is, did something you didn't expect and you're struggling to let go of that. Maybe in this room, your other is a person of authority. Maybe it's a pastor or a leader or someone in authority of your life who has made you feel less than who you truly are. Perhaps for you, the other is someone who has a political perspective different from yours. And you've seen and heard what they've done and and you don't like it and you've been annoyed and frustrated by their posts on social media and their actions and you've harbored anger and upset and bitterness towards them. Our other could be a lot of different things. But the reality is each one of us has another other in our lives. And the challenge of Simeon's song and the beauty of Christmas is whether we can sing a song that has grace amazing enough that would enable us to sing that song about the other. Not that as Christians we should subject ourselves under the abuse of the other. Not that, we, not that it should be okay that we continue to be victims under the wheels of injustice, no. But we need to make sure that we guard as Christians against a hardness of heart towards those that have done things to us. 
And, and we need to guard against this reality that sometimes we have this kind of comfortable Christian theology, which puts us always on the good side and others on the bad side. And we need to realize that like Simeon cradling Jesus in his arms, Christ cradles the church in his arms. And he says, church, can you sing the song of grace that is so amazing that it's even for the one you don't like? One of the great significant foundations of the Christian faith is this, that in the coming of Jesus, we have the coming of the reality of grace for all, a grace so amazing that it is offered even to the one that we think does not deserve it. Can you sing that song? A few years ago, quite a few years ago, as I was starting to be a pastor, I'd quit my job in finance, and I had decided to become a pastor. And so I'd gone away and done some studies, come back, and the vine was giving me my shot. They were giving me a chance to be a pastor. And I was beginning to preach a little bit in the church, and I was beginning to get a little bit of a platform in the church where I was, I was preaching a little bit regularly. And right there at the start, a man in the church, here at the Vine, made it his mission to make me feel as bad as possible about the decision I had made. He would come up to me after, I, I'm not even joking, every sermon, every week I preached, and he would come up to me straight away. He'd be the first in the prayer line. And he would never come forward and ask for prayer. He would only come forward to critique what I say. He would tell me all the things that I had forgotten, all the stories that I should have told, all the passages of Scripture that changes and, and refutes everything that I had just preached. If he didn't catch me on the Sunday, he would send me an email on the Monday. He was faithful. Not the kind of faithfulness I like, but he was faithful. He would send me an email on Monday with a litany of, of stuff that I could have done better. This went on, I, I kid you not, it went on for years. And I'm grateful to my wife, because without her I would have crumbled. And I'm grateful to God's presence. But I managed to somehow get through it all. I haven't thought about that guy for a number of years. But as I was preparing this message a couple of weeks ago and thinking about what I was going to preach, immediately he came to mind again. And it was the Holy Spirit saying this. You can't sing that song about him, can you? And I was like, no. I believe grace is amazing, but it's not that amazing. And I knew that I could not stand before you today and preach this message without having gotten myself into the point of truly forgiving that person and releasing them to truly wanting the light of revelation and the beauty of God's presence to be in their lives. And I can stand before you today and tell you that I've done that. And here's how I was able to do it. Verse 27. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. The only way that we are able to truly sing the song of the one who has offended and hurt us, a song of great, amazing grace for them, is through a move of the Spirit. It cannot be done in our own strength. It cannot be done by some good strategy. It can't be done by just, you know, trying to work it up inside of us. I thought that's what I had done years ago with this person, but the Holy Spirit brought it back to me because I hadn't really dealt with it. The only way you are able to sing a song of grace 
for the one on the other side of your life is by a move of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that there is nothing more Christmas or Advent for you in this season than for you to not just receive an amazing grace, but for you to truly be able to offer an amazing grace. Could we sing that song? I wonder whether you'd stand with me and I want to create some space for us to pray. I want to encourage you, if this is speaking to you today, our eyes are closed, you're not doing this for my benefit, the Holy Spirit wants to come now and move by His Spirit on you. And so if this message has been important to you for whatever reason, if there's an other that you know that you're struggling to offer grace to, I wonder whether you just open your hands before you, just quietly, no one's looking. Because I want to pray for those in this room where this is important for you. Where there's a song to be sung that you're struggling to sing right now. Father, I want to pray now just for everybody in this room, Lord, whose hands are before you. Lord, we do that as a symbol of humility. And I want to pray now for the work of the Holy Spirit to do what my words, what no sermon or anything can really do. The work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to find a place of healing, a place of restoration, a place of reconciliation, if that's possible. It may not be possible for every circumstance and situation. but a profound place of grace. Father, we need this so much. Father, I pray for each person in this room that your Holy Spirit would come now. Lord, Simeon was moved by your Spirit. We need to be moved by your Spirit, Lord. We cannot forgive these people. We cannot release this burden. We cannot genuinely sing of grace for them unless it's a move of your spirit in us. So I want to give you time and space now. Father, we need this so much in our city right now, where families have been torn apart, marriages have been broken, where companies struggle, where divisions are deep over the last two to three years. Father, we need a profound work of your spirit on the church in our city. And we need a profound work of your spirit on and in the streets of this city. And what better time for that work of the spirit than Advent? Lord, I wanna pray that songs would rise up in this city where we can genuinely say a light of revelation for that one. Grace and mercy, God, for that one. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move now for these ones in this room. Sometimes we recognize, Lord, that the ones that we are at enmity with are sitting around us in the pews of our churches. And so, Lord, I wanna pray for a restoration of division in this church at the Vine. Wherever the enemy has gotten in to create division in the last few years, we come against that in the name of Jesus. 
And Lord, we pray for a mercy and a grace to pour out on the vine, pour out on us, so that we might be able to walk towards one another with true peace in our hearts. As Simeon would say, Lord, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. Lord, I know that there are many in this room that have been carrying and harboring disappointment, bitterness, hurt, in some cases for very good reason. Would a move of your spirit come, Lord, that would enable us to truly experience amazing grace. I just pray you would allow yourself to sit in this moment of ministry. And I'll give the team in a second just begin to sing over us, but don't feel like you need to rush into worship. In fact, it might be nice for them to sing over you the words of this hymn. And in your own heart, just allow the Holy Spirit to continue to heal and to speak to you. Allow his profound work upon you.